Law Talk with BJ, the podcast where trial attorney and legal commentator BJ Bernstein and her guests discuss the latest issues from around the legal world. BJ is a frequent commentator on television and radio. She's unique in that she not only comments on legal issues, having been lead counsel on numerous high-profile cases of national interest, but her relatable personal style allows the viewer to understand the law behind the headlines and why it's important. Now, here's your host, B.J. Bernstein. Welcome to Law Talk with B.J. This episode, I know I always tell you all that it's a special episode, but this one really is because this is an attorney who has consistently made national news and changed the landscape of how the public is accepting and realizing the discrimination that that occurs in our justice system and in particular has been involved in some of the most high-profile cases in the last five years in the United States. And I also get to say he is my friend. He is attorney Ben Crump. Welcome, Ben, to Law Talk with BJ. Hey, thank you so much for having me, BJ. I am so delighted to be with you because you know how great a lawyer I think you are. Well, I'm a great lawyer, and I'm going to go ahead and tell everybody, I'm also his driver. (laughs) Ben and I met, um, I kind of give the backstory, Um, Natalie Jackson, who was your co-counsel when you were representing Trayvon Martin. Yes, ma'am. It's family. Another great lawyer. Another great lawyer. And she had a mediation in Atlanta. (laughs) And had called me to come to the mediation, and then she called an attorney named Ben Crump to the mediation. (laughs) And I don't think we got it resolved that day, but it got resolved later. But then uh, I took the role as your driver, and I took you to the airport. Yeah, my (laughs) high-profile driver. And um, we've done that a couple times, because when Ben (laughs) comes to Atlanta area, he's doing a lot of cases. He's working pretty hard. And um, it actually gives us a chance to really talk. And and so I hope that as you listen to this podcast, you get to know the Ben that I know, in addition to the public figure that he is. Yeah, and I just want to say, BJ, publicly, when I say privately, thank you always for the advice and counsel and being a sounding board as we're trying to strategize on these cases. And these cases, let's let's talk, let's go to really the first one that made your name, um, and obviously that is a Trayvon Martin shooting um, and tragedy there. Tell, you know, there's been a lot of time that's gone by now, and now as you look at your career, what are your insights and thoughts from that case and what happened? It still is heart-wrenching. I talk to his parents almost weekly, B.J., uh, wonderful human beings. Um, you know, as I think about Trayvon and the impact it had on America, I, I often reflect on that a lot because I think it raised the consciousness of America that black lives matter. Uh, before Trayvon, you know, it became the number one news story in the world. And I think that had a big part to do with us advancing as a society. Uh, I represent the family of Botham John with some other great Texas lawyers, 
And that was the recent case in Texas with regard to the shooting by the officer mm -hmm. of your client yep. and his death. The white policewoman who uh, led, she came into the wrong apartment and shot and killed Botham John, who was sitting on his couch eating ice cream, watching the football game. And then she wanted to claim self-defense. Um, but after that verdict, that historic verdict, BJ, because we have looked and we documented that it is the first time a white policewoman has been convicted of murder for killing a black man in America. And uh, so after that verdict, we, at least I said in interviews that this verdict is not just for his family, it's also for Trayvon Martin, for Michael Brown, for uh, Tamir Rice, for Sandra Bland, and so many other hashtags that we've come to know over the years. And the reason I say that is because Trayvon really enlightened America. I'm sure that jury knew what would come from their verdict. And so they paid very close attention to the evidence, and they said we have to treat this young black man as a United States citizen who is worthy of all the respect and the consideration that we give to anybody else in the law, that whole concept equal justice under the law. So I think in many ways Trayvon Spirit is with me in every case I do because I still think that— Because it's still not—I I hear what you're saying. I think you're trying to convey with regard to, yes, that was an important starting point in realizing about um, violence, especially against— black suspects. Yeah. But that's several years ago. And then I see your book now and it seems the title of your full title of your book, Open Season, Legalized Genocide of Colored People, which speaks to that this is something pervasive, um, that this is something that is continuing. It has not ended with that one verdict or you were involved with the Michael Brown case. Yes. It did not end with Michael Brown. No. Tamir um, Rice. Tamir Rice. 12 years old. Philando Castile. Yep. Alton Sterling. Their name after name after name. Yeah. And I, I'm guessing that's why you actually wrote this book, to go dive deeper. Yeah. And, and one of the main inspirations for this book, and there were several, BJ, was when we were in Ferguson, speaking of the killing of Michael Brown, uh, who had his hands up and the uh, call, hands up, don't shoot, became widely repeated. Um, there was a young man out there when the National Guard was there with their assault rifles and pointed at him center mass, and he had no fear of them. He walked right up to them, BJ, and, I mean, it was fascinating because he really had no fear. He told them with his face almost touching the tip of the assault rifle, go ahead and kill me now with all the cameras watching because y'all going to kill us anyway when the cameras are gone. So kill us now so the world can see how y'all are killing us. And that was riveting to me. And I, I agree with the young man. 
it is important that the world see how they are killing us, but not just in these uh, high-profile police cases on the streets, but more poignantly, how they are killing us every day in every city, in every state in America with these trumped-up felony convictions. And B.J. Bernstein, you know it probably better than most because you were a criminal defense lawyer and you know how racist and discriminatory the laws are when it is trying to put young people of color on the pathway to the school-to-prison pipeline. Absolutely. I mean, well, and we've talked about this on the podcast, as everybody knows, I do criminal defense work, and and um, that's part of how we ended up, you know, knowing each other in general besides this, just knowing each other's work and what we do. I want to quote, I'm going to read you a little bit of something from your book, and let's jump off from there. So in, in your book, you say, Today, there is an America, in America, a persistent and prevailing unhealthy mindset regarding people of color. It's rooted in our history as a slave-owning nation, and it's given rise to voter disenfranchisement, unequal educational opportunities, disparate health care, jobs, um, housing discrimination, all of which is part of the mask that legalizes genocide. And I read that passage in particular because you're known for these police shooting cases. You are known for your civil rights advocacy um, in suing entities. And we'll talk about what a 1983 suit is in just a minute. But what I found fascinating about this book is um, this is a bend that I didn't hear in our rides. You know, when I, the times I get to see you, it's always you're working on this one particular case and we're talking about it. And in this book, you've taken a step back and are really looking at the entire situation of how you see race in America right now and how it affects across the board, not just in the situations of violence. What made you do that? What I endeavored to do with Open Season was to be able to hold a mirror up to America's face and say, you have to acknowledge the hypocrisy that is fabricated in not just the legal system, but all your institutions that are causing a genocidal situation for people of color in America. And I think that this book in many ways is an extension of what the great Paul Robeson uh, did in 1951, who he was the most famous African-American in the world at the time. And he, along with W.B. Du Bois and the other black leaders, went to the United Nations Convention in 1951 in Paris, France. And it was in the aftermath of World War II where you had all these war-torn countries uh, saying, petitioning for genocide, how— they were treated in the atrocities that they had to endure during World War II. And the black leaders said, we charge genocide against the government for the killing of Negroes in America. And they based this, B.J., on the killings, the lynchings, and the raping of black people in America and the fact that there was no recourse in the law. Seemed like no matter what injustice that was brought upon us, 
was legalized in some way, what I call the intellectual justification of discrimination. So when you talk about, you know, the school to prison pipeline or you talk about environmental racism, we see children in South Central Los Angeles have a third of the lung capacity as children in Santa Monica, California. And you see that they are legalizing these toxic polluting chemical plants in our neighborhoods within breathing space where our children play and go to school, you have to start trying to uh, speak truth to power and say, America, why are you denying so many black people equal justice under the law? And when you look at the fact that one in five black men in states like Florida and Tennessee are convicted felons, and many of the other states are very have very similar statistics. And the experts opine if this keeps up in the next 25 years, one in every three black men in America would be a convicted felon. And it's like they are killing us softly every day in the courtroom, not only killing our spirits, but literally denying us the opportunity to legitimately survive in this uh, land of the free. And that's what we mean, just like those brothers in 1951 said that they were killing them, and they said in the conclusion of that petition that either the United States government was complicit with or responsible for creating a genocidal situation for Negro people in America. Now, 70 years later, when you look at our courts and the law, that's supposed to be the last refuge against the injustice. But in many times, it is the very instrument of law that's supposed to protect us that they are using to kill us. And so with all those things you said, you said a lot. So I'm going to slow you down a little bit okay. on a few of them. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, I get no, a little no, it's, no, no, no. It's the, and this is why we're, you know how I am when yes, I'm in ma'am. the courtroom too. I'm, we get on a roll. Um, but I want everybody, especially to realize in this book, you know, that you talk about the past, but interestingly, you do trace a path forward. Yes. You And, and I think that's, Important in a couple different ways in terms of you, at least how I look at it as a lawyer. You know, that as a lawyer, you get one client and you are charged to take care of that client. So when, for instance, um, you took care of Michael Brown's family and you were focused on Michael's Brown fam- family, but you're still in a case that's making national news and then to the next and to the next and to the next when did you start to realize and put together, and we're going to talk about the path forward, a more cogent, broader view of where we are in this country in terms of race and improvement of the lives of all people of color? And I think you also importantly acknowledge in your book that there's more than just color. Um, there's a lot of groups that are, have problems and and still inequities in the law. Absolutely. Uh, BJ, I think when people see uh, legalized genocide of colored people, they only assume skin color. But we all can be colored by our sexual preferences, by our gender, by economic status, uh, disenfranchised uh, and marginalized on for many different reasons. And so this book speaks to all those things. We talk about how the law is so, and it's not even 
any kind of due process when you think about uh, transgender women being put in the prisons with men, knowing that they're going to be raped and very likely killed and that the statistics bear out, but yet the law will continue to put them in that situation and it doesn't matter how many times they are petitioning the courts for just a right to live and uh, choose who they love. The law is saying we don't care about those uh, rights, you know, those what you think human rights. They have marginalized them to say this is how your life is going to be and you're not going to get the protection or the consideration of the law. But then you look at other instances where we talk about the immigration camps, and you hear where our president and the, his Supreme Court are doing when it comes to these issues that are justifying children being taken away from their parents. And unfortunately, some of them dying in those immigration camps or consecration camps, whatever you want to call them. But obviously the law that's supposed to protect them is not protecting them. And they are, again, it's the intellectual justification, the discrimination. I argue in the book that when you look at the Supreme Court of the United States, no matter what the situation is, it's always that people of color get the most of injustice and the least of justice. And I don't think that's by accident. I think that there is a conspiracy amongst the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch to make sure they keep the status quo in America to have a permanent underclass citizen. You said we started off as a slave nation. It's very true, and we have to point that out very carefully because, you know, we were three-fifths when the nation started based on the Constitution. But before that, remember, slavery has been around since antiquity. And in America, in the Caribbean, was the first time that it changed. It became something completely different because when you had war, then if you accepted Christianity, they wouldn't have you be a slave anymore. Or when you paid off your indebtedness, you wasn't a slave anymore. But, you know, the uh, Americans in the Caribbean plantation owners said, hold on, man, these black people are something special. I mean, they're unique. Uh, they can survive anything. They can do anything. They survived the slave castles and the Senegal and the West Coast of Africa. Then they, they survived the Middle Passage. And now they're the only ones who can stay out in that cotton field all day for saint, can't see to can't see and still live. Man, we don't want to give that up because this is too good for our business. I mean, if we can control our labor costs as free, we can make untold profits. So what is it about them, how we can justify them forever being slaves? And they said, aha, uh -huh. their skin color, just like a zebra can't change its stripes, they can't change their skin color. So we're now going to define them as slaves based on their skin color. And oh, by the way, not only will they be slaves for their entire life, when their children are born, they will be slaves too. So we will have younger, stronger slaves. They will be shelter property forever. And now we come to the prison industrial complex 
and slavery by any other name is just the same. And you see in the book, we talk about them direct filing young people more and more. I mean, 14, 15, 16 year olds in adult prisons, they're just getting younger, stronger slaves. And that's what we have to bring their attention to. And that's why I'm unapologetic in the title when I say the legalized genocide of colored people, because with every aspect, whether they're killing us with the bullets or they're killing us with the law, it is still killing us. Another thing that you, because we talk, you're talking about prison, but you also talked about environmental racism in your book as well, and in particular, Flint. Yeah. You know, the ironic thing to me about Flint, and I, I and, try to point— and, and just to make sure our listeners, Flint, Michigan, where the water was um, yeah. poisoned, po- essentially, literally, literally poison. with lead and and the changes. They're still struggling to the, have clean water. There and in New Jersey and in Puerto Rico, it's where you have large populations of people of color. Seems like it's happening. Um But the ironic thing about Flint to me, BJ, is this. Um, And it's terrible that you would be so calculating that you would let the water supply be poisoned to not only affect the living, but also affect all their children that are being born to them. Um, You know, the war on drugs. All the prosecutors would say, we have to lock them up and throw away the key. Every little black or brown person selling marijuana, selling uh, drugs, they would lock them up and throw away the key because they said, we got to be hard on crime. We got to be hard on crime because they poison in the community. And, you know, you got hundreds, thousands of black and brown people sitting in prison for nonviolent drug offenses. And they said it's because they were poisoning the community. Now we come to Flint, Michigan, where they was actually poisoning the community and nobody goes to jail. And it is has been legalized. These children are now having brain uh, problems and they are having problems breathing and they're having all kind of medical issues because of the water that has been poisoned. But yet nobody is held accountable. And so... If you don't define that as legalized genocide, I don't know what you can define it as because everybody can pinpoint when the uh, powers that be in the state of Michigan made all these decisions because they just didn't give a damn about the poor people of color in Flint, Michigan. Now that the factories had left and so forth, they took control of the local government. And these were all these conservative bureaucrats in the capital of Michigan making decisions to take the water from the Flint River versus taking it from Lake Michigan and said, Flint citizens, be damned. We we if we can save 10 cents, we don't care about you having clean drinking water in one of the most prosperous nations on Earth today. This has been allowed to happen. And goes on with each, as you mentioned, you know, when we have disasters and emergencies, you think about in the coast of um, Louisiana and Mississippi when the storms came through. Katrina. Katrina. In fact, um, I don't think we've ever talked about this. After Katrina, I ended up 
um, I was watching it on the news and, you know, you were sending money and doing things. Mm-hmm. And I read, heard an article and I saw like how bad it still was down there. And I thought, you know what? What am I doing over the holidays? I'm a nice Jewish girl. I don't celebrate Christmas. <laughs> um, you know, get in your car. And I found an order, you know, I found something online and said, uh-huh. you know, you could just fill up your car with stuff and go down and start helping out. And I remember going down there and I was camping out on a little league field in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi. Uh-huh. And um, I was in shock how nothing not much had been done and you thought you know because when you watch the news and with all the problems you're describing you know whether it's flint you're like wait a minute i heard that on the news a couple years ago what do you mean there's still problems there um every single place where there's a problem it extends beyond where the cameras have left yep and and certain groups in particular like you're talking about where for like what shocked me is how many elderly people who had no family were still in the FEMA trailers and had to be convinced. In fact, my job was, one, I was wheelbarrow girl. I was really good at putting all the sludge in the wheelbarrow and getting it out. I'm not a builder. Yeah. Um, and two was talking to the people and saying, can you give us permission to help let us help you because they're so traumatized. Yeah. And you know, I think that's another piece of what you're describing here, which is beside the literal killing, but the altering of the soul and the will to live and belief that there is a chance to get help or that things can be different. Um, There's a hopelessness that gets built into it. And I think some, you know, some of the things that you're talking about in the book I think go to that as well, that it's not just the big cases that you do, but what's behind that and what can we do together um, or insist that our politicians do to not forget how these things change the course not for, for a individual family to a block, to a city, to a state, yeah. to our country. Yeah. You know, BJ, in that 1951 document, uh, We Charge Genocide, they used the very definition from the United Nations uh, Convention on Genocide, which is acts that are done with the intent to destroy a group in whole or in part. And that's very important. In whole and in part, don't say you got to wipe everybody out all over time because they they understand you can kill people slowly over time based on uh, national, ethnic, racial, or religious identities. And they said to the United Nations, how can you not say this doesn't apply to us in America? And I'm saying today when you look at all these laws where they sanitize the injustices. I mean, when you think of all these Superfund sites uh, out there that exist on environmental racism, when you think about the redlining, uh, we talk about that in the tale of two Americas with the banking system, how uh, white privileged, mostly rich men are able to get the best rates with the bank. They can lie still and cheat, and then when something happens, they still don't go to jail. But if a black person, uh, a black woman has welfare fraud, 
tax uh, fraud, they put them in prison for seven to 10 years. I mean, the hypocrisy is glaring. And so you think about all those things, even the fact that they have now legalized marijuana in many states uh, in America. So now you have the government selling weed to make money to pay its bills. But when you have black and brown people selling weed to make money to pay their bills, they put them in prison. So with this book, we talk about the hypocrisy and that we object to the government making any profit from marijuana until they let all the black and brown people and everybody else who's sitting in prison for selling marijuana out because it's just hypocrisy. Plain and simple, America has to be equal justice under the law or we need to quit lying to people. We got to be honest with ourselves. We got to admit that there's a problem because we are better than this America. And if we admit that we have a fundamental problem with racism and discrimination in our institutions of governance, then we can finally start trying to solve the problem. But until we admit it, then we're going to continue to come woefully short of our high morals and ideals. So what you're saying, you know, in your book, you talk about a little bit about Philando Castile. And I don't know if you've ever, back um, at the, um, I feel like it was the Whitney Museum in New York, there was a painting um, by Henry Taylor um, that depicted, it was was a painting about Philando Castile and his death. Mm -hmm. And the title was, and I saw it when I was um, in New York on a visit of Love Art, and I, it, when I knew you were coming, I went back and looked at that photograph, the, the painting again, because I remember walking into the museum. And that's the other thing is, you know, there are different ways to connect to people about injustices. Mm-hmm. There's the news. There's the courts. Um, there's music. There's speeches. Art, yeah. There's art. There's books like you've written. And what you were just saying, though, the title of that painting was The Times... They ain't a changing fast enough. Yeah. And I think that really encapsulates a lot of what you're saying in this book. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, to some people, it's just abstract, uh, BJ. They can never fathom their child being killed by the people who are supposed to protect and serve them. They can never fathom their children having to live next to a chemical plant that is causing them cancer, they can never fathom. You're talking about something unbelievable. I I talk about this to some extent about uh, when the prison industrial complex claims so many of us when some people go to prison or jail, they only are concerned about losing their constitutional rights. But with minorities, especially women of color, go to prison, they not only have to worry about losing their constitutional rights, but they also have to worry about losing their reproductive rights. Um, As late as 2014 in California, it was documented that black women and Hispanic women were being coerced into having forced sterilizations while they were in prison. And it was legal. I mean, they had justified doing this. And as late as 2017, You had judges in Tennessee 
pronouncing sentences of black men saying that we will take off 10 years of your 12-year sentence if you just agreed to be sterilized. I mean, you're talking about genocide literally and figuratively. I mean, and you see it happening over and over again where the law is saying, well, that's that's okay, that's allowable. But if it was, you know, the shoe on the other foot, I mean, the most vivid painting of the hypocrisy that I can display in this book is when you think about death row. And you think about and, the- and and I'm going to say this real quick, just to give some, you're you're sitting here talking to me, and you literally had your hands up yes, like ma'am. that, like you know we, we were all saying with each suspect hands up, and they're still shot, and and that's yeah. as you're talking through this, you just did that. Yeah, because it's it's so vivid in my mind. I mean, the easiest way to get on death row in America is to be a person of color and you kill a white person. I mean, black men only make up 7% of the population in America, but we make up almost 50% of the population on death row. So that means either one or two things. Either one, black men are some terrible, evil, criminal-minded people, or two, the criminal justice system is racist and discriminatory towards people of color. And I choose to believe that black men are no worse than anybody else. It's like Dr. King said, there's some good in the worst of us and some bad in the best of us. We're all human beings. And this system is just very racist because you consider that, BJ. Now, you consider the just opposed of that when white people kill people of color because of racist Jim Crow stand your ground laws. There's no guarantee that they will even be arrested I mean, they kill people in our community, and then they go home and sleep in their bed at night. And that's a big part of your book. You talk about the stand your ground laws. You spend a whole chapter on that, about how they came about, how they're employed. Yeah, it, it is absolutely part of the genocidal situation in America because black and brown people had gotten used to, regrettably, the police killing us and not being held accountable. But because of this Jim Crow stand your ground law, any Tom, Dick, or Harry can kill us and not be held accountable. All they got to do is say, I felt threatened, I felt in fear, which is eerily similar to what the United States Supreme Court gave police to get out of jail free pass when they kill people, especially people of color, based on Graham v. Connor and Gardner v. Tennessee. All they got to say is, I felt fear, I felt threatened. And if they say that there... The Supreme Court said, you came Monday morning quarterback, the police, you know, you weren't there. But you're like, they shot him in the back. Why would they have fear if he's running away? That says it all. Why why are you in fear when you're shot in the back? Yeah. And, and, you know, you never, I also have a chapter called the police don't shoot white men in the back. Uh, You do. (laughs) Because, BJ, think about it. If I asked you, can you name me? Five black men who have been killed uh, by the police based on brutality or being shot in the back. You can write off 5, 10, 15, just like that. You know, Walter Scott, Terrence Cruncher, Philando Castile, Michael Brown, Alton Sterling, you know, Corey Jones. The list goes on and on. And then you say, well, name me five white men. I don't have one for you right now. And I'm not being facetious. It's not it's not in the consciousness in the same way. Yeah. And and I think it's because it just 
it's so rare if ever it happens. But them shooting a black or brown person in the back running away is almost like a cliche. So where are where and I I know you go to the courts. You 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 fight there regularly. You're going public and so many of your you know the other lawyers who work in the civil rights arena are all out there um showing over and over the changes where we can where there is video. I mean it is made a huge difference technology yes. improving all this because back when I was a baby lawyer 33 years ago, you know, I mean, there was no phone to capture this. You, somebody could say something, but you would just say, oh, whatever. And the cases you've worked on, obviously, the availability of cameras, whether they're on every street corner now, uh, our phones, everything, has been part of this change mm-hmm. because, and I'm assuming it's easier for you, just like it is for me in the courtroom you know, it's one thing if I say or a witness says something, but when you see it, mm-hmm. you know, it kind of takes your breath. It more than takes your breath away yeah. when you see it on film. But so, but beyond that, what else can happen? And again, I know you talk about a lot of it in at the end and in, in this path to get away from this problem. But what other tangible thing other than the lawsuits, other than speaking about it and the publicity about it, that can change the hearts and minds of those? I mean, there are some laws changing that I know as a criminal defense attorney, if you had told me certain things with regard to mandatory minimums would be shifting the way they are now, Mm -hmm. um, I never thought that would happen or I didn't think I would see that. So where are you seeing that in terms of the violence well, what I think the changes, uh, and like uh, the late Johnny Cochran says, it's a journey to justice. It, we It won't always be a fast journey, but we have to keep uh, marching forward for our children because their lives matter. I think where we are seeing changes, and we are the change that we seek in many instances. We have to participate in the civic process. We have to call people out. I, I offer examples in the end of the book of things that we see, we can do. Uh, just by going out to vote, we saw in the aftermath of Ferguson, they elected their first African-American uh, district attorney. We saw in the aftermath of uh, Laquan McDonald in Chicago, they elected their first African-American district attorney. We saw in Cleveland after the death of Tamir Rice, that district attorney was voted out. We saw in Orlando, Florida, in the aftermath of Trayvon Martin, they elected their first and only black district attorney in the whole state of Florida. So we're making progress, and we look at these recent convictions. I know just this past year, three cases the way I represent the families in the civil matters, they were all uh, convictions in these high-profile uh, shootings. One down of Corey Jones in West Palm Beach, Florida, where the police said, stand your ground, even though he was in an unmarked car with jeans, T-shirt, and a caustic Corey at 3 a.m. in the morning while he was on the side of the road with the tow truck driver and had the tow truck driver talking about technology, had the tow company not been recording the conversation, he would have lied and got away with murdering a good kid in Corey Jones. But an all-white jury came back and convicted him, and he was sentenced to 25 years. Uh, and Marquise McLaughlin 
we see in that particular case uh, this parking lot vigilante who was captured on uh, video surveillance from the uh, convenience store video that he was convicted and sentenced to 20 years. And then we all saw what happened to Amber Geiger in Dallas, Texas, that she got convicted. So, and I know she only got the 10 year sentence. That's another issue. But in all these cases, we see we're making slow progress. Your, your, one of your chapters quotes MLK, we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. And I think maybe that's what you're trying to say, that you're refusing it. Um, I try to refuse it in my work. I think a lot of lawyers are refusing that yep. and trying case by case. That's the other part of what we do. That is case by case. Um, you know, well, and, and at the other part, we're real quick. I want at the beginning. So I, I and I learned something about my friend. So you grew up in North Carolina. I did, and I grew up in South Carolina. And I'm about five or six years older than you. Okay. But you were reflecting on your childhood. Mm-hmm. And that caused me to pause and actually make the mental note, wait a minute, how old was I? Because South Carolina and North Carolina is not that different. Right. And I remember that I went to a private school. That was a private school that was predominantly all white that my parents wanted me to have a good education. I, I distinctly, even this is embarrassing, but true. I remember um, one of my scout leaders who was black had driven me somewhere to a meeting or something with some other kids. And she said, oh, why do you go to such and such school? And I just looked at her because I just knew the word my parents had said, but I didn't know it. And it was, oh, because of desegregation. And when when everybody listened, when you read this book, and I was reading your words and your thoughts as a young person, it made me start, think of my words as a young person. And now we're down the road of life, and we truly are friends. Yes. Um, but I feel like there's there's things I can never fully know in this life because I didn't experience it. And then I read what you thought about and what you, as a young person, and it made me just very sad that someone's my friend and felt that way. Yeah. You know, I think about those days, and it shapes who you become in life. Um, I remember my mother, a single mother, raised me and my two little brothers. She worked two jobs, and she uh, sacrificed so much for our future, and I thank her every day because I watched her work one job all day that morning, come home, uh, figure out how to put some food on the table for us, and stumbling, get back in the car to get back to work for her second job. Uh, and we primarily was being raised by my grandmother uh, because my mother had to sacrifice all her time for us. But I always remember my mother saying that Baby, life ain't fair. Life is hard. You make it fair by what you bring to the table. And if you don't bring anything to the table, don't expect nobody to let you sit down at the table. And that stayed in my mind all throughout life, especially when I was in college. And I remember graduating from Florida State University 
And the would you the, love that school? Yeah, I do. And one of the first things I said to my mother is, "Mom, I'm bringing something to the table." Wow. You have, and you continue to do so. And so, as we, I've got to wind it down. We could, as y'all could tell, we could, and actually, this is where we can do long drives together <laughs> oh, and yes. talk nonstop about things. Because I, what I want the book to be is a conversation piece for America, for all people, black people, white people, brown people, red people, so we can acknowledge the hypocrisies and we can say in unison, America, we can do better. Uh, we can the do next better. generation. My parents put me in a situation, and then with life. And even their guidance with time made changes, you know, and how we and realize um, that we lead with our heart uh-huh. instead of our eyes with the color. Yep. Or and so with that, as everybody knows, on every episode of Law Talk with BJ, we enjoy a cup of tea, and I choose a tea appropriate for my guest. And for Ben, I chose ashwagandha tea. Um, it's a tea leaf found in India or North Africa. Okay. And it's about strength and clarity. <laughs> and that's what I feel from you, my friend, that you have embraced your legal career seeking clarity, improvement, strength, and imparting strength to your clients, and then writing this book that some people will love, some people may not love. Oh, yeah. But the conversation must happen. And an honest layers coming off of seeing the real situation. Yeah. So thank you. No, thank you. I'll say this last thing if I can, BJ. All right. You're the only guest I'm going to give the last okay. word on my podcast. Right, That's how much I love okay, you. Okay. And I love you too, BJ. <laughs> I, I just say this, and I'm sure you share it too. The reason I have such clarity and I could be so strong in my opinion is uh, something Dr. King said. Dr. King said that the coward asked the question, is it safe? He said expediency asked the question, is it politically correct? He said, vanity comes along and asks the question, is it popular? But then he said, conscience comes along and asks the question, is it right? And he said, there comes a time when one must take a position that's neither popular nor politically correct or not even safe, but one must take a position because their conscience tells them it's the right thing to do. I believe it is the right thing to do to fight for equal justice under the law for all people in America. Amen. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, BJ. I love you. Love you, too. This podcast is not to be construed as legal advice. With any legal issue, you should reach out to a professional attorney that practices law in the state and area of law for which you need information or consultation. Law Talk with BJ does not establish an attorney-client relationship, which is only formed when you have hired an attorney and signed an engagement agreement or contract. It's Law Talk with BJ Music Theme, written and produced by Atlanta Audible. This podcast copyright 2018, BJ Bernstein Esquire. <laughs>